Welcome to episode 352 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker, author of What, When, Why, and creator of the supplement line Avalon X. And I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Spina, sports nutrition specialist, author of Keto Essentials, and creator of the Tone Breath Ketone Analyzer and Tone Lux Red Light Therapy Panels. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and ketogenicgirl.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment. To be featured on the show, email us your questions to questions at ifpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. So pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free, plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises, and you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, AKA it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration and electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes, which are clean, without unnecessary fillers, and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right, you can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash podcast to get your free electrolytes.
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, friends. This is a very special episode today with Dr. Longo. We can't wait to hear what you guys think. If after listening, you would like to try the fasting mimicking diet, you can go to prolonlife.com and use the coupon code IFPODCAST to get 10% off your order of the Prolon FMD. So that is prolonlife.com with the coupon code IFPODCAST for 10% off your order of Prolon. And then the show notes for today's episode, which will have a full transcript, will be available at ifpodcast.com slash episode 352. So again, prolonlife.com with the coupon code IFPODCAST for 10% off. All right, now enjoy the show. 
Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. We have a very special episode of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast today with a very special guest. This is somebody that we talk about on this show all the time. We get questions about all the time. We are here with a legend in the fasting world, Dr. Walter Longo, who actually is from USC where I went. So it's personally, I'm very excited about this as well. Fight on. (laughs) So listeners are probably familiar with Dr. Longo, but for those who are not, he is actually the Edna M. Jones Professor of Gerontology and Biological Sciences and Director of the Longevity Institute at USC. I remember actually when I was at USC, I used to always pass that building and it looked very mysterious to me. I don't think I even knew what gerontology was at the time, which kind of shows how far things have come in my life. Dr. Longo, though, he has received so many awards for his work like from the NIH. He's been recognized by Time Magazine, just a laundry list of things, which we will put in the show notes. He's also the author of an incredible book, which I have right here, The Longevity Diet. I highly recommend it. The subtitle is Discover the New Science Behind Stem Cell Activation and Regeneration to Slow Aging, Fight Disease, and Optimize Weight. And Dr. Longo has actually been, he's been on my other show, the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, and he's actually been on this show like five years ago now. So it's been quite a while. And I know there's been a lot of developments and updates and so many things. So I have so many questions personally. I have a lot of questions from you guys because you had a lot of questions. So Dr. Longo, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So to start things off, just to get listeners a little bit familiar with your work and for those who are not familiar, a little bit about your backstory. What made you so interested in aging, calorie restriction, fasting? I know in the book you talk about wanting to be a rock star when you were younger. So um, what led you to what you're doing today? I was a music student actually in Texas at University of North Texas, had the, one of the best jazz programs in the nation. They asked me to, to direct the marching band. And so I said, there is no way that I'm going to do that. I was a rock uh, guitar player, so I, I wasn't going to be a, a marching band director. And I have nothing against marching band, by the way, but I wasn't going to direct it. So I thought, you know, maybe what I always wanted to do was aging. And it was always in my head. And so I was probably 19 years old and I was sure that I wanted to study aging. So I, I went over to the biochemistry department. And uh, of course, they thought I was crazy because, you know, I never taken a biology course in my life. And they, they say that you're not going to last more than three months, but, uh, you know, that's not the case. And so that's all I've ever done since. And then fasting came in mostly with Roy Walford at UCLA when I started my PhD in 1992, a long time ago. And Roy at the time was the most famous person on the planet for nutrition and, and aging. And he was not surprisingly working on something called calorie restriction so I, I, I started in his lab, but then I left his lab to go back to the biochemistry department and start working not on calorie restriction, but on starving bacteria and starving yeast. So I, I sort of got the sense from the very beginning that starvation, real fasting, like water-only fasting, was hiding something even more important than just calorie restriction. And maybe the and so calorie restriction just refers to just eating about 25% less calories than normal but, but fa- fasting, of course, is no calories at all. And so, yeah, since then, uh, I've been uh, focusing in my la- laboratories, both here and, and in Italy, I've been focusing on uh, fasting. I have so many questions already. Just to start, 
With the animal studies, how much of the aging pathways and everything in the animals, how appropriately do they apply to humans? Is it a like a one-to-one thing or is it more extrapolations or what's the comparison there? You mean in general, timing-wise? When you find findings in rodents or yeast, how do we know how much that applies to humans? This is why I started working. I, I went from humans and mice in Walford Lab to bacteria and yeast in the, in the, uh, at UCLA in the John Valentine's lab. And because I thought all these organisms have a 3 billion years of history. And I thought in 3 billion years, all these organisms have been evolving in parallel. And so I thought there's going to be probably very fundamental laws for what's happening during fasting that apply to all organisms. Now, of course, there's a lot of differences and you have to, you know, make sure you understand them and, and you apply them. And so that's what we do. So we run lots of clinical trials for that reason. But, but I think the fundamentals were going to be, the, I mean, at least that was my hypothesis. The fundamentals are going to be the same. So if you starve a yeast, a unicellular eukaryote, it's going to start shrinking and then it's going to get into a, a low aging mode and it's going to start eating its own components while it's shrinking. And then eventually you feed it again and it re-expands, right? So I thought, this is probably something very much conserved all the way to humans. You shrink, you eat your own parts, essentially, while you're doing that, and, and, and pick the ones that are most damaged. And then turn on programs that are very similar to the embryonic developmental programs, so the, the same programs that generate organs, when you need to re-expand, right? It all makes sense. And that's what we now see in mice, in rats, and, and, and we're starting to see this in people, but really a lot, a lot of that started in yeast and, and bacteria. Okay, awesome. Yeah, two thoughts from that really quickly. One, I think you were pointing out in your book that like, we clearly as humans, when we create an embryo, we have the potential to create something that is you know, not aged. It's really interesting that our bodies age, but we still harbor this seemingly inherent potential to create something that is like completely young. So how do we, like, how do we apply that to like our entire body? Is that just two different systems? Can that translate over? Is there something different that's going on when we're creating embryos versus our bodies aging? Yeah. So, and this is the big difference between, I think what we do and what a lot of my colleagues do, right? So, so there's a lot of biohacking and our point is being that the human body already knows how to go back to zero, right? Uh, meaning age zero. So, so then, but the, how do you do that, right? So how do you, how do you make a, you know, a liver or a muscle or a pancreas regenerate itself and go back to zero? And so we've shown that, in fact, you can do this with fasting mimicking diets and, and do multiple shrinking, re-expansion, shrinking, re-expansion. And if you do it enough times, you'll see that Actually, these Yamanaka factors, these reprogramming, these markers of embryonic development, they turn on, right? And they start the process of regeneration. And then when you refeed, they actually start the process of re-expansion and, and making new cells and more functional cells. And you, you know, if, for example, we've done it with pancreas. We, we take the, the mouse and we damage the pancreas to, to where it makes, no longer makes insulin. And then we start with the fasting-making diet and refeeding cycles. And you see that you re- the, the pancreatic cells bega- begin to be uh, reprogrammed. And then eventually they start making insulin again and they become functional again. So we went from a 
permanently non-functional pancreas to a regenerated functional pancreas. So yeah, so this is just some of the examples. Now, can you actually make it all the way to uh, an organism that is, is young, an organism that is completely young? That's much, much harder. But you know, I think that we're on the right track, right? And and you know, and I don't know that we want to make people go back to, to to being, you know, 15 years old, but certainly we can rejuvenate. I mean, we're, we we now know that we can make people younger. Is the question is how much younger? So at the point of death, what do you think is happening there? Because the, what I'm thinking through in my head right now is, you know, the aging of all these different organs and the potential to, I don't know, independently anti-age each individual organ, but the body as a whole, like, what do you think actually happens at the point of death? Is there a system-wide message where it's just decided that everything has independently aged enough that we just have to like stop all systems or what do you think is happening there? We've been working also the theoretical uh, part and, you know, we're not very busy on that, but we have, and, and there are two possibilities that we, we came up with. And one is that aging is actually programmed, right? Which is very unlikely. We demonstrated it for unicellular organisms. And what does that mean? But we, nobody's ever demonstrated for mammals. So is it possible that there is actually a program to kill us, to get us out of the way, right? So that new generations can have the space and the food and the resources to, to grow. That's, you know, the, the evolutionary biologists will say that's crazy talk. There is no way... And maybe it happens in microorganisms, but nowhere else. But let's assume that that's not true. Then the other part is it really, there's something called the force of natural selection. And so what does that mean? It means that the evolution as the job is, is selective for organisms that are very, very protected as long as they're still in a phase where they can contribute to the next generation, Right. So let's say for humans, let's say it's 40 to 50. After that, it would make sense, and we know that the force of natural selection goes down, meaning that the, the force that kept everything working in an almost perfect way is now weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. So by the time you get to 70 or 80, that's almost gone, right? There's no force anymore. And what does it mean? It means you're on your own. And your organs are on your own. There is no uh, help from evolution anymore because evolution doesn't care about that 73-year-old person. And in fact, it might select against it, you know, get out of the way. That's why then we die because, you know, we've been on our own for 30, 40, 50 years by then and things go progressively uh, wrong. Eventually, the system stops you. In all of the various animal species, does the timing of when they typically reproduce and the amount of time required to foster those children or the (laughs) the babies, does that correlate to the lifespan of the species pretty equally? Yeah, very much, right? Very much. So so there was a a great experiment done, you know, 40 years ago by Michael Rose at UC Irvine, I think, and he took flies and he took the flies they were reproducing early and then he took the flies that were reproducing late, right? And he selected them for many generations. Kind of like saying, imagine if we went out and took women that are having children very late in their mid-40s, right? And then we took women that had children very early, 18, 20 years old. 
And then we, for generation, we selected these two groups, right? And then they went back and looked at it, and the flies that were reproducing earlier, they had a shorter lifespan, a much shorter lifespan. And they were very good at reproducing, but they lived a lot shorter. And those that were reproducing until later time, or at later time, were selected for reproducing later time, they were not as good at early on, you know, they were 80% as good at, at reproducing, but they were living, they were making offspring for a lot longer. And this has been shown in lots of different organisms. And so, yes, so, so the reproductive span is uh, very much associated with the lifespan. Oh my goodness. Okay. I'm so excited right now because that question haunts me. Do you think that translates over to humans? And so for example, this is just me being completely selfish. Like I don't, I don't really anticipate having children. Do you think women who don't have children, would that affect their lifespan at all? That's actually been published in many studies, right? So it's a, it's a little tricky because on one side, there is an advantage and then there is a disadvantage of having too many children, probably because uh, people become very stressed out, right? So I think in the end, there's probably not much of a difference. So it, that per se doesn't, doesn't matter that much. And, and if there is a difference, it's probably a few years. But the point would be if, if we found a way to postpone make, let's say, women and men, you know, reproduce until much later. Let's say that we found a way to allow women to reproduce until age 65, then most likely that group of women will live longer on average, you know, or, or a lot longer on average. So fascinating. Okay, one more last animal rabbit hole question. The anti-aging or longevity programs or mechanisms in the immortal jellyfish is that the same pathways or do they have something else going on well the jellyfish are are a little bit you can look at them a little bit as a colony of microorganisms right so if you look at a colony of yeast or bacteria i mean is the colony immortal yes it is immortal but you know does it really relate to us, right? Well, yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, but it's going to be very difficult to translate that immortality of a colony. And so the, the jellyfish, in a sense, are like a, a colony that sticks together, right? And, and of course, it's a more complex organization, so it is closer to a mammal than, than a colony of yeast. But I mean, let's say, let's say it's an in-between situation, right? So you, you cut something off and, and it can regrow. Like, just like if you kill part of a colony of bacteria or yeast, it's going to regrow back. It doesn't really care that you, that you kill some of it, right? And, and the same is true for certain uh, fungal colonies, right? You know, that, that, have been, you know, that have been discovered to be, I don't know, thousands of years old and been growing for thousands of years. So now you can say, is that an organism or is it a, a group of organisms that simply you know, keep expanding? Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. Okay, coming back to the, the calorie restriction and the fasting, a foundational question I've always had, these pathways that are activated, the effects of fasting, are they 
the same pathways as calorie restriction? Are they different? And also, if you are engaging in different modalities like fasting and calorie restriction or fasting and protein restriction or all the various things that might be anti-aging, do you think those effects are additive or do they cancel each other out? Like if you're doing one, are you pretty much good? Or does doing multiple things add more anti-aging potential? Well, I, I think that, of course, the risk is that if you start doing multiple things that are improvised, that can hurt you, right? So already calorie restriction, again, refers to eating 25% less than normal, not less than people eat, but less than normal, right? So then a typical meal would be, I'm fairly thin, you know, and I'm 170 pounds. If I were to be calorie restricted, I would be maybe 145, right? So, yeah, so, so it's, it's already pretty extreme, right? So now, even that, it's not clear that that's going to be beneficial to anyone. I mean, the, the study in Wisconsin on monkeys, I mean, uh, Wisconsin showed lifespan extension, but the one in uh, at the NIA did not show lifespan extension. And so then you will argue that there may be calorie restriction, chronic calorie restriction, like that extreme and chronic, it's going to give you a lot of benefits, but not necessarily make you live longer. And in the process, uh, it's probably going to slow down your metabolism and your and your hunger, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, so I would say that I think that the periodic fasting mimicking diet are, are starting. And I mean, and protein restriction is another one that I like. And time-restricted eating was Sachin Panda has been talking about for, for decades. Now, those are the things that I like, you know, and I think they are additive, meaning like if you eat for, let's say, 12 hours a day, maybe a little bit less, 11 hours a day, and then you're protein restricted, but not excessively protein restricted, you got to be careful because you can go from, from one problem, which is too much protein, to the opposite problem, which is too little amino acids of, of certain kinds, right? So, yeah, so then time-restricted eating, let's say, eating for 11, 12 hours a day, plus protein, the correct type of protein restriction, the correct type of, of diet, say pescatarian, what I call the longevity diet, plus the periodic fasting-making diet, plus the exercise, that's probably 20 extra years of life expectancy. You've mentioned a lot of words that we did get a lot of questions from listeners about, so I'll start bringing some of them in. So on the protein front, I think listeners and even me <laughs> and my co-host Vanessa when she's here, I think there's a lot of confusion surrounding protein intake. On the one hand, we talk all the time on this show about the importance of actually like a moderate or high protein diet for you know muscle growth and just supporting body composition. And I recently interviewed Dr. Gabrielle Lyon all about the benefits of protein. But then on the other hand, we see these benefits of low protein and how protein associates with aging and, you know, dietary protein restriction, the benefits of that. So we had a question. I know my name is Melanie. This is from another Melanie, not me. <laughs> she wanted to know, um, she said, what level do you think is low protein do you think it is best to always be low protein or is it okay to cycle between low and moderate or high protein diets? So protein, what can you share about this issue? Yeah, well, first of all, the 20 years of life expectancy that I mentioned earlier is compared to, let's say, a Western diet, right? So not, not, not compared to somebody that might have a, you know another type of positive intervention. So the protein, you know, 
everybody loves this oversimplification. High fat, low fat, high protein, low protein, high carb, low carb. And I think we, we need to move away from this, right? And, and I know people like it simple, and I, I, can, I can understand that, but it's not simple. The human body is extremely complex, so the solution is not going to be simple, right? So even protein, you could be on a high-protein diet and have deficiency in, in lots of amino acids, right? So let's say that you are on a 100% legume diet, very high protein. Let's say 25% of your, of your calories come from protein, you're still going to be malnourished, right? Because you're, all you eat is legumes. Why? Because legumes contain very low level of a number of amino acids, which are very central for muscle and lots of other functions. So, yeah, so my recommendation, so we started clinics in the U.S. and Europe from the foundation, and these are nonprofit clinics. And so we, I recommend, it's called Create Cures, and I recommend that people consider either talking to, to people, our dietitians and nutritionists at the clinic, or, or somebody that knows what they're doing. Unfortunately, this low or high is really meaningless, and it could be very damaging because people then may say, oh, you know, I have very good protein intake every day, so I'm good to go. Not realizing that they don't because all they're eating is legumes. Or, you know, I have a reasonable low protein, but it's all from red meat. I'm fine. And, and again, now you may not be fine just because, yes, you have, say, 17% protein of your calorie uh, in protein intake, but it's all from red meat. And you still might have a problem, right? So, yeah, so then, and, and then it gets more, even more complicated than that because there's phases of life, right? So if you're zero to three is one level of protein, then three to 10, then 10 to 18, then 18. So in all the way to, let's say, maybe 25 to 65, 70, a relatively low protein diet is good, mostly vegan, but not completely vegan. But then after 65, 70, then you have to go higher and have more animal proteins because otherwise you're going to be deficient in certain amino acids, right? So I know it's a very confusing answer, but that's because it's extremely complicated. And, you know, and I, I'm just trying to summarize it in, in one minute, but it, it's, it's almost impossible, right, to, to really give. And, and that's my message here, instead of having an answer, is like, please do not think you can get a manual out of, you know, one hour with me or somebody else because it doesn't work like that. Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, 
basically the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it. And it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. You have so many studies published. It's overwhelming and amazing. And I was going down the rabbit hole, reading a lot of your recent ones and going down, like just what you were saying about, you can't summarize things in one minute. Like even with your studies, like I'll read like one study and then I want to read like all the references and there's just so much information. And I was even going on one rabbit hole because it was talking about in the case that they were looking at, I think it was in monkeys, the calorie restriction was actually protective against sarcopenia, which was kind of mind blowing. So it just kind of goes to show how, you know, 
complicated everything is and how many layers there are. Yeah, and it, but, but it can be, so calorie restriction causes muscle loss, but then some studies suggest that, you know, in that lower muscle, uh, the lower level of muscle now is more more functional than, than the higher. But again, most people are not going to want to look like they're starving uh, and have more functional muscle, right? So then, but yeah, so there's even there, as you just pointed out, it's a complex answer and, and it's best handled by somebody that, that can follow the person and get them to where they want to be. So the muscle itself, we got a few questions about that. Laura wanted to know, is there a way to mitigate muscle loss on an extended fast? And Shelly wanted to know, does the fasting mimicking diet really protect you from losing lean body mass? Dr. Longo says the glycerin drink that's included in the Prolon kit is supposed to protect you from losing lean body mass. So what have you seen in your studies and trials with the fasting mimicking diet and, and muscle loss? Yeah, we've seen that four out of four trials now are showing, you know, we're looking at about maybe 300 patients, all ages, no lean body mass loss, right? So, so there is a temporary lean body mass decrease during the fasting mimicking diet. I mean, and this is as, you know, I cannot talk about commercial products, but as it is in the box, right? So people sometimes they complain about, oh, my sugar spiked. Well, that way we tested it is protecting, I guess, muscle loss and is increasing insulin sensitivity and it's actually helping reverse diabetes, right? So it works the way it is, right? Now, if you change it or improvise at home, who knows, right? I don't know. But I can tell you, and, and some of these trials we didn't do, right? Other people have done, but it works very well the way it's, it's been designed. And I think it not only it works very well in protecting lean body mass loss and in causing insulin sensitization, but also I think that we worked very hard in making sure that somebody could do this for 20 or 30 years and it'd be hard to claim that problems come from this diet, you know, because we're saying you should probably do it only maybe three or four times a year and that's it, if not less, right, depending who you are. Yeah, so I think that we now know we can protect lean body mass. Now, when we combine it with diabetes drugs, that's when we see the lean body mass loss, right? So, but of course, we don't see it without the diabetes drug. We see it in the diabetes drug. So we, uh, we're presuming that it is the diabetes drug. It's not the, the fasting-moving diet that, that is causing the, the lean body mass loss. Oh, wow. So like when it's combined with metformin, people tend to lose? In both the trial, one was with metformin, one was with all diabetes drugs. Then we see the lean body mass loss, but you also see it with the drugs alone. Question about those findings and results. Are you finding that nobody's experiencing overall lean body mass in the end? Or are some people are and some people aren't and it, and it averages out to them not? I'm just wondering if there if people respond differently individually. Or is it pretty consistent? It's generally consistent, but some people, I mean, we'll have to look at the, the scatter plots, but some pr people probably, I mean, so on average, they don't, but some people are probably going down and some people are going up in muscle mass, right? So so I think that, so if, if somebody was doing it and they clearly saw, but to know if you're losing muscle, you will have to get a DEXA or, or something similar, right? To Because... Well, you know, there is some some devices that can measure 
impedentiometry they can measure, but those are probably not very accurate. But yeah, so if you get a DAXA, you'll know if you in fact lost muscle mass and, and bone density. If somebody was in that category and, and, you know, and they, for whatever reason, they think it's a fasting making diet, you know, then that's something to keep in mind. But, but the issue is also how frequently are you doing it? Because if somebody was to do it, like the trials that I just told you on diabetes is once a month for six to 12 months, right? So we're not recommending anybody else does that. So that means that, you know, you're doing it six times in six months or 12 times in 12 months. And that may also be why we see some lean body mass loss. And so my point being that, you know, if you do it once a month for three months and then you stop, then you have all the opportunities to regain your, even if you were among the, the small percentage that for whom uh, lean body mass is, is reduced, then you have an opportunity to regain it. Is there a difference in people who are obese or overweight versus people who are normal weight with the muscle loss? No, there isn't. So we looked at uh, normal weight and we looked at, so at least two trials, normal weight and two trials on uh, overweight and obese. Yeah, no lean body mass loss in the absence of, of other drugs. Yeah. And in the one we just finished in Italy, there was even six cycles in six months and still we didn't see any, any muscle uh, and lean body mass loss. Yeah. You said there is a temporary loss. How fast does that come back? Is it right after they stop? Within one week, we measured that one week after and it's already back. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You're talking about how people were saying that it spiked their, their blood sugar and the implications of that. So maybe just to revisit it one more time, because Heather literally had that exact question. She said that she's done several rounds of the FMD diet, the fasting mimicking diet. She says, I wore a CGM on a recent round and the soup spiked my glucose significantly from around 70 to 160. How is this mimicking fasting when consuming soups causes a huge insulin spike? So that actually adds another question. It, you know, is that still fasting if you're getting that high blood sugar response? We're not trying to have an identical effect to water-only fasting. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to make people live longer, younger, and healthier, right? And so from all the trials, we see, so if somebody sees the 160, they will say, okay, well, this is going to make me gain weight and this is going to make me insulin resistant. But yet, trial after trial after trial, we see exactly the opposite, right? And then even trials like Heidelberg, you know, completely independent of us or Leiden or, you know, all these trials are, have been done by other people, by big universities. So, because you know, people can say, oh, you know, there is a product behind it and, and there is some attempt to... Uh, yeah, no, these are independent trials and, and that's what they found, right? So, yeah, so then the spikes may actually be beneficial to maintain lean body mass and maybe, maybe even they may be beneficial to, to get this impressive sensitization to insulin, right, that we see in a short time. Now, we are also going to try, you know, to, to test versions that have a lot lower starches and have a lot lower carbohydrates. So we'll see. But I think, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years in the clinical setting, and it's going to take us a while to beat the effects that we see now. For example, Heidelberg saw A1C dropping from, I think, 8.1 to 6.7. Very impressive change, you know, in diabetic patients, right? So, so yeah, and I'm sure lots of them were getting the same spikes as this person is saying. 
So I, you know, again, I'm a very worried. People are, are just going home and getting the con- continuous glucose monitor, seeing one piece of it, and then concluding that this is bad for them. Very dangerous. But you know, I'm all for people checking themselves, and and that's good. But don't come to conclusions because that, that's now the the way it works. We'll see, and and I wouldn't be surprised if when we test it with lower glycemic spikes, that we start seeing less effects. So interesting. And actually, I was reading last night, one of your, I think it was more recent, it was a study, it was called Diet Composition Influences the Metabolic Benefits of Short Cycles of Very Low Caloric Intake. And it was looking at very low caloric intake with a standard laboratory chow in rats compared to plant-based fasting mimicking diet. I'm just curious because it was saying that a long-lasting metabolomic reprogramming in serum and liver is observed in mice on very low calorie intake cycles with standard diet, but not fasting mimicking diet. Do you know the state that I'm referring to? I'm wondering if that was a... I think I'm, I'm among the authors, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm, yes. Was that a beneficial metabolomic reprogramming with the standard chow? This is a, a study by Rafa de Cabo, and, you know, and this is the way probably the, the graduate student was working on it saw it, but you know, now we have lots of mouse lifespan studies, even, you know, mice on a high fat and a high calorie diet. And, and this we published a few years ago. Uh, so it's taking that short window that you saw in the paper and it's taking it lifelong, right? And, and we're showing that remarkably, it is a nature metabolism paper from two years ago. Remarkably, the fasting making diet dance only once a month is able to reverse all the problems caused by the high fat, high sugar, high calorie diet, right? So the heart effects, the insulin sensitization, uh, the insulin resistance, you know, the, and the effects on cholesterol effects. Yeah, so I would say now we have lots of mouse, rat, and human data. It's pretty consistent. It's, it's almost like it's working. It's a little bit too good to be true. So I would say, you know, now we're hopefully uh, we're going to get some negative results because so far, it's been working even much better than, than we expected. I always think, you know, whenever I saw the Heidelberg study, they, they did something very similar to the paper you're referring to. They did five days of a Mediterranean diet a month, right? In diabetic patients, five days of a Mediterranean diet a month against five days of the FMD. And when I look at the paper, I think they probably did it to show that it, our, the FMD is pointless the Mediterranean diet is going to work. I mean, I don't know, right? But I suspect that that's what they, they, they were trying to do. But sure enough, the Mediterranean diet is worthless five days a month. And the FMD causes remarkable effect. And go look at it because it's really impressive differences between, yeah, this maybe a little bit calorie-restricted, very healthy diet and the FMD. So now I'm super curious, in your history of running all these trials, what was the biggest surprising finding for you, or it doesn't have to be the biggest because that's a big question, but what was like a big surprising finding for you? Maybe sometime where you thought you would find one thing and you found the opposite or yeah, what has been surprising in your FMD trials? I think that the effects on cancer have been remarkable and thus far and I think for, at the beginning, we will have expected kind of like what you see with the ketogenic diet, right? So you see working against cancers, lots of cancers, but actually helping some cancers grow faster, right? So the, the, the ketone bodies hurt a lot of cancers and help some. 
And I, I expected that from the fasting making diet. I truly did. And, and I'm surprised that after 20 years, we haven't seen that, right? And I, I expect it, but really, like another two papers were published just this week on the fasting making diet and cyclic fasting. It just keeps on working in all the, the models that, that have been tested. Yeah, so for example, a paper that just came out in cancer research this week uh, by a Chinese group showing that the fasting mimicking diet is causing B cells to start attacking the cancer. So another another novel, a colorectal cancer in this case, right? So in mice, yeah. So I think that uh, that's surprising, right? That 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 you know, after all these labs and all these attempts, and nobody yet has come up with uh, negative effects. But I'm sure. It's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So, so very happy about that, but also very surprising. Do you have a theory as to what the fasting mimicking diet might be circumventing or avoiding that is the problem for why ketogenic diets sometimes support cancer? My theory is the following. Is it possible that starvation for human beings represented an opportunity, kind of like sleep, right? So an opportunity to get rid of damage component, right? So something that is under the force of natural selection that I mentioned earlier for the purpose of distinguishing good from bad. And so you only do it during fasting and not necessarily when you have a lot of food, right? So, and why? Maybe because the bad becomes food for the, for the, for the person, right? So, so, so it's a lot of speculation, but is it possible that because, let's say, precancer cells, cancer cell, autoimmune cell, you know, insulin resistance cell, infl- senescent cells? So imagine all of this is food, right? So you don't want to throw it away. So maybe because we starve so frequently, maybe that was left around to become food when we don't have any food coming from the outside. Do you think? Because I'm not sure exactly which cancers are supported by ketogenic diets, but do you know if they've done calorie restricted ketogenic diets in those situations? No, these are these are normal calorie ketogenic diet, right? Yeah. So of course the FMD is a calorie restricted ketogenic diet. So, so yeah, but they've done usually normal calories, right? So yeah. So of course yeah, the normal calorie. If there was a program, they were signaling you know, go after the damaged cell because we're starving. So the normal calories now will prevent that, right? And say, well, we're not starving. We're just getting the calories from somewhere else. And so maybe that's why we see both because yes, the ketone bodies may be part of the program to kill cancer cells, but, you know, the ketone bodies may also be part of the uh, fuel for certain cancers, you know. Mm, Okay. And and then speaking of self-eating and breaking down these things, so we, we do talk about autophagy a lot on this show, and that's another thing where I think it, it is so presented as black and white, and like, you have, a t- like, autophagy is on, autophagy is off, like, when in reality, autophagy is probably occurring all the time to different levels, and it's probably way more complicated than the way it is often presented. So in your trials, can you actually measure autophagy? So, so do you guys measure autophagy? Candice wanted to know... When autophagy peaks, she says she's seen charts online, but who knows what type of science that's based on. Yeah, now there are multiple, uh, there are trials that, to look at the FMD and autophagy. We see it in mice, you know, after a few days and yeah, probably maybe by day three, that's when, and, and it also depends in which cells, 
in which organs yeah so so it's gonna take a while to 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 you know know how much autophagy is going on in how many systems but you know autophagy i think is just a, a part a small part of of this what i was talking about earlier this shrinking re-expansion so one of the components is autophagy but there's probably also cellular killing as i was mentioning earlier and using cells to for fuel the reprogramming of cells the stem cell activation the stem cell self renewal so there, there's probably a big program to remove damaged components and then regenerate and autophagy you know i i speculate maybe 20 percent of the whole operation gotcha for the stem cell piece do you find that it affects both the release of stem cells does it increase the amount of stem cells how all does it affect the, the stem cells in the body yeah, so in, in, of course, in humans, we're, we're just beginning to look at it, and we did have some initial evidence that we published on, on circulating stem cells. But in mice, for example, the hematopoietic stem cells, the, the, those in the blood that give rise to all immune cells, they increase in number and then they increase in, in self-renewal properties, meaning they start, they start proli- uh, producing more of themselves, right? So stem cells get activated and make more stem cells. And then, you know, this is associated then in the mouse with a, a rejuvenation of the immune system and a restoration of, of damaged immune system. Yeah, so, so more stem cells and more active stem cells. But in some other organs, we don't see the stem cells going up. We see the reprogrammation, reprogramming of cells happening and the Yamanaka factors. So, you know, we think that it, go, it can go both ways. You know, one way to achieve it, more stem cells, another way to achieve it, Take a, a somatic cell, reprogram it into an embryonic-like cell, and then uh, do the job and then go back to a, a differentiated cell. Wow. So, so fascinating. We got a lot of questions about women specifically. So I guess first as a, um, as a foundational question for me, when you're doing these, the majority of your studies, are they split populations of male, female? Do you test and women specifically so are there sex differences we haven't seen it yet now we're probably we we, te- we really tested the fmd on thousands of patients in informal clinical trials right at least over a thousand probably between cancer diabetes and all the other diseases alzheimer etc probably you know maybe 1500 so far there wasn't there hasn't been anything this that is so evident that it works in male, doesn't work in female, or, or vice versa. But I think as we have more bigger numbers for specific changes, so let's say, for example, A1C or fasting glucose or cholesterol, then at some point, I think once we have, let's say, 300 males and 300 females that have done, you know, say, three to six cycles of the fasting-making diet, then we can go and, and, and compare them and see, is there actually a difference in the response of males and females? But clearly, they both respond. And all the trials thus far thus far have been mixed with males and females. I'll read two of the questions I got about it specifically. So April's she said, great timing. She said, I just started his book today and we'll do a round of prolon when I'm done. I'm curious if his guidance differs for perimenopausal women versus other groups, but I'll see if he covers that in the book. And then Tabitha, she said, do extended fasts or fasting mimicking diets affect women's hormones? And should they only be done at certain times of the monthly cycle? Curious to know, especially during the perimenopause time of life. So do you have any guidance there? 
Yeah, so lots of people are asking are asking about this. We haven't got reports of you know, let's say in in the cycle, is, is some some the FMD is done early on versus late. We haven't got reports from people saying it clearly works best in in one part of the cycle or another. And so far, we haven't tested you know around menopause, before menopause, and and after menopause. But it's certainly been tested on women in all those stages. And thus far, we see pretty clear results in all stages. Also, because some of the trials might have had, you know, half of the women pre-menopause and half of the women post-menopause, and it works as a group. And so I think we will have seen problems if it was just specific for a stage of life. But again, as I was saying earlier, and I encourage people to write to, to us and, and say, you know, I'm in this stage and this is not working for me. And, you know, and you never know this could motivate a clinical trial on a specific population. But thus far, we haven't seen it, but it doesn't mean that, that it's not there. So it could be that something works a lot better in, in certain groups. But I think that the effect is so powerful that probably most people benefit regardless of the of the stage, but yeah, maybe some uh, will benefit more. Hi, friends. I wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about some brand new, exciting news. I am about to release the second generation of the Tone device. If you are someone who does intermittent fasting on a regular basis or even prolonged or extended fasting, and you like biofeedback and data, the Tone device is an incredible tool for gauging your rate of fat burning. Now, when our bodies go into a state of ketosis, we generate ketones in the liver, and part of those ketones are diffused through our airways in a form called acetone. Now, ketones themselves, the ones that our liver produces from our fat, they are actually a form of fuel, and acetone is a byproduct of that fuel production and utilization. So it actually gives you a proxy for your fat burning and lets you know how deeply your body is in a state of fat burning based on the ketones being diffused. So 15 to 20% of those blood ketones are diffused in the form of acetone. And so we can measure and quantify our rate of fat burning. I absolutely love using the Tone device and so many Tone device users do as well. It's non-invasive, it's one investment and you don't have to buy these expensive wasteful test strips all the time. You can use it an unlimited amount of times. I have been working for the past couple of years on developing this brand new second generation of the Tone device and I am so incredibly excited about it. I am going to be offering a very special launch discount on the second generation of the Tone device. You can sign up to receive that discount by going to tonedevice.com and signing up with your name and email address and you will be added to the list to exclusively receive this launch discount on the brand new second generation of the Tone. So again, head over to tonedevice.com to sign up for the list and you will receive that launch discount, which I have especially created for listeners of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. All right, friends, now back to our show. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that'll be exciting to see future as you get more and more, more and more feedback with that. And that actually made me think of another question when you're talking about when to do it. Age of onset of implementing fasting mimicking diet or, or really 
anything, but I guess I'll keep it specific to fasting mimicking diet. Is there a difference in when people start implementing this as far as the potential benefits that they see, or is it pretty much whenever you start it, you'll be good? Well, I I think that it all depends, right? For most people, they're going to have some issue it's going to be beneficial. Now we see effects on cholesterol. Some of it, a lot of the, a bunch of this is not being published yet. But let's say we see clear effects on, on, on LDL. We see effects on blood pressure, A1C. Uh, we see effect on abdominal weight. Again, no loss of lean body mass. So, you know, if you think about all those things and C-reactive protein in multiple trials, it goes down, inflammation goes down. So... I would say, you know, the great majority of people are going to have some issue in this uh, in this arena. If you t- think about the Americans, people in America, have 75% are overweight and obese, right? And, and, and maybe probably 85% have some weight issue. It just, so that means that 85% of the people will clearly benefit. And now we've been talking about if you just think about the weight and nothing else, right? But probably 95% of people will benefit if you think about the weight and all these risk factors for diseases. So we've talk, been talking about 20 to 70. Now we just finished the Alzheimer trial in, in you know, people up to 85. And, and I think the results are surprising in a good way. We, we expect that people having problems, but we didn't see that. And, and, and becoming frail, and we didn't see that. And also we're doing trials in, in the very young one, down to six years of age in the type 1 diabetes trial in, in Gasolini Children's Hospital. And so now we've been talking to people about the possibility of running a trial in the young, maybe not so young, but maybe like say 14 to 18, is it possible that maybe this is a great way to give them these five days of a vegan diet? It's a great way to educate the the brain of a a younger individual without forcing them to, to eat less or change their diet. And so with the hope that they get there on their own, right? That's another thing that we didn't talk about. But these five days of a vegan diet, a low-calorie, fasting-mimicking vegan diet, they they have such a beneficial effect on people that we see lots of people basically gravitating more towards, you know, vegan nutrition. And so, yeah, so then could it be that in children, in the teenagers, this is going to be a good way to train the brain to behave in a different way without imposing diets you know i imagine that's a lot harder to conduct those trials probably getting like consent i guess or getting it approved to do it in the younger populations it was not an issue but it in in the gaslini children's hospital in in genova italy is inpatient right so they have to check into the hospital so but these are very young like down to six years of age and with type 1 diabetes right so uh, yeah, I think that we've been talking here at CHLA with different faculty. Doing it in the 14-year-old, 14 to 18, I think it should should be pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, they're still getting 1100, 800 to 1100 calories a day, so it, it, the risk is really minimal. But yeah, of course, I love to go through their, their ethical committee approval. As far as actually doing the fasting mimicking diet, because I realized we kind of just jumped in, could you just tell listeners briefly what the um, Prolon program looks like? And then I have a, a specific question about how it can be implemented. But in general, it's five days, or yeah, would you like to just tell listeners a little bit what they should expect? The FMD that we've been testing in lots of trials, now there is a different version. There is a version for Alzheimer's, there's higher calorie, there's a version for cancer, there's a lot lower calories. There's a version for autoimmunities that 
it's a different composition. But I say the one for normal people that uh, that has been tested so much, I cannot name commercial names, but let's say that one is 1,100 calories or so on day one, and then it goes down to 800 calories on day two, three, four, five. It's a low-calorie, low-protein, high-fat, plant-based, and it's relatively high in carbohydrates, even though it's very low-carbohydrate, but, I mean, composition-wise, it's relatively high, and that's by design. I did not want people to cycle between high ketogenic state and low ketogenic state, and it's maybe out of a, a over being overcautious, but that's the way I like it, you know. So I, I was always worried that, you know, if you get to severe ketogenic states or high, very high ketone bodies and then back, and you keep going back and forth enough times, that could eventually cause problems. And, you know, I don't have any evidence for that, but I, I was afraid of that. And that's why, by design, the, the FMD is relatively high in carbohydrates, even though, you know, because it's so restricted, it's, it's, it's still a very low level of carbohydrates. So that possibly sort of answered my question. My question was, so like I personally do a one meal a day approach with intermittent fasting. I think I talked about this before last time I had you on the show, but I eat like very high protein and then I fast during the day. So with the fasting mimicking diet commercial version, (laughs) would I be able to do it in a one meal a day approach and have all the meals at once? Or it sounds like that would be the antithesis of what you were potentially nervous about happening. Not necessarily because, you know, the FMD... Again, let's say that you do it three times a year. That's not really going to... So you could do it either way, right? You could try to compress it. It will be hard to do for you. But if if you already do it like that, it it is possibly doable in one meal a day. And this is only for five days. And then you go back to, you know, whatever it is that you do, right? So so I think that it it can be done like that, but it would not be easy, let's say, to have the two soups and the bars and... And all the other things that, that are in there, all in, in one shot. But it's it's uh, it's doable. But it's also not necessary, right? And 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 so you know, for those uh, say 15 days a year, you could have your regular meals. You know, say morning, uh, noon, and and uh, evening. So basically, the comparison between daily intermittent fasting all the time versus fasting mimicking diet you know, however many times a year, but then not fasting the rest of the time. I mean, I don't know if it's a comparison where you're like, oh, this is this one's better, this one's not, but you're seeing similar benefits. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, what are your thoughts on that, that comparison? Because a lot of the audience, you know, is doing daily intermittent fasting. Yeah, I mean, the daily intermittent is not intermittent fasting. I think is, you know, I, I, I like uh, Sachin Panda's time-restricted eating, meaning like, you know, eat within so many hours a day. And I think that's a very good practice in addition to the periodic fasting making that, you know. So I recommend 11, 12 hours of food consumption because as you get to the 16 hours, you start seeing gallstone issues. If you skip breakfast, you see, you know, this is associated with a shorter lifespan. So, you know, the the, the breakfast keepers, they tend to live shorter than, than the non-breakfast keeper. Now, of course, it could be that the breakfast keeper have a, a terrible lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not a good start. And this is why we usually, I usually say, you know, if you're going to skip, skip dinner, you know, and fast for 16 hours or whatever, probably better not to skip breakfast. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you cannot be a breakfast keeper and, and live to 100, but the epidemiological data suggests that it's going to, in general, the breakfast keepers live shorter, have more cardiovascular disease, et cetera. They're compatible. So you could do, let's say, you know, 11, I mean, um, yeah, so let's say 12 or 13 to 16 hours of fasting per day, regardless, right? And then on top of that, as I was saying earlier, add the, uh, the say, three times a year fasting mimicking diet. So the two things are expected to be additive, if, if not syner- even synergistic, potentially. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, the breakfast thing is something where I, I just feel like it's so complicated. And like with the epidemiological data, I just wonder if it's a lot of healthy user bias. Like we've been told so long that skipping breakfast is bad. So are people who are breakfast skippers, you know, engaging in other lifestyle habits? And then a lot of the studies are funded by the breakfast cereal food industries. And No, no, they're not. They're not. No, 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 no. In fact, we did the same thing. We did the analysis and got scooped by a Chinese group. And we saw the same with the NHANES, the CDC database. You know, it's very clear effects on, on, uh, yeah, and and those, don't forget that these epidemiological studies adjust for smokers and adjust for bad behavior. And on top of that, you, I always ask the question, why doesn't that, let's say they have bad behavior, some bad behavior, which we, we do not see. Why doesn't a good behavior, which would be the, the fasting now, counterbalance the bad behavior, right? Why don't we see them at least live normal? We see them live shorter, right? And that's where you got to become concerned, right? So yeah, let's say they have bad behavior. Well, if 16 hours of fasting is clearly beneficial. There's nobody's arguing with that. Why doesn't that help them, you know, at least live normal? I see what you're saying. So not necessarily fasting studies, but if there are studies on breakfast skippers, they are technically then fasting a certain amount of time. So technically they shouldn't see the, the issues. Yeah, so most of them are going to be fasting for 14, 16, 18 hours a day, right? Because they skip breakfast and they may, I don't know what time they had dinner. So, yeah, so then I'm not saying that 16 hours is bad, but I'm saying, you know, this breakfast skipping is definitely not a good idea. And uh, and also there's papers that, that I, I actually wrote a little piece on about a year ago showing that people started eating at 12 o'clock. You know, right? they, they were hospitalized. And they either started at 8 or 12, the same identical diet, right? And those that started at 12 had a lower energy expenditure and they were hun- hun- uh, increased hunger, right? And so now we not only have epidemiological studies, now we have the second pillar, clinical studies, showing why that could be a problem, right? So start at 12, now you're going to be more uh, hungrier and your metabolism slows. Did they actually end up eating more still? I don't think they, no, they were eating, they were being fed the same exact food, you know. Yeah, they, they brought them to the hospital and they gave them the food. Yeah, so then the very controlled study, right? So, yeah, so then, of course, you know, if somebody only eats once a day, like in your case, well, you know, eventually you're going to be able to control it and still have benefits. But, I mean, in the, in the general population, that recommend, just that change caused problems, multiple problems, I was thinking of the studies where they skip breakfast and they do, they are hungrier, but they don't ultimately end up eating more because they can't like literally compensate for that entire skipped meal by making it up later. No, no, they were, they were eating, they, they knew exactly what they were eating because they were, they did it in the hospital, right? So, so yeah, so then uh, this was very controlled 
Yeah, so it's very clear that the results and multiple trials actually were in the same issue. This cell metabolism from about a year ago, multiple trials are were showing the same thing. Very interesting. Okay, well, one more last topic. I want to be really respectful of your time. So many people just wanted to know in general your blanket recommendations for for lifespan and longevity. So some rapid fire, just some quick questions. <laughs> Stephanie wanted to know, how can I live to 100? Or sorry, to 180. 180 would be good luck. Tell me. If, they, if you find out, then tell me. But to 110, I would say, you know, read the book. All the profits go to, uh, all my part goes to the foundation so we can help people live longer. And so I don't make a penny out of it. But yeah, the longevity diet goes through it. But in general, number one, pescatarian diet, fish plus vegan, maybe fish three times a week, high nourishment, low protein, let's say age 20 to 70, and then you go moderate protein intake, a uh, good, uh, you know, wash the amino acids because you cannot, if you have vegan, you cannot just have legumes, you have to have legumes, seeds, and nuts varieties so that you get the right amino acids. Then 12 hours a day of time restricted eating, maybe 13 hours a day of fasting, you know, say, say, you know, 12 to 13 hours a day of fasting. If you're overweight or obese, skip lunch that, like I do Monday through Friday. And then you can have, you know, the normal three meals on, on Saturday and Sunday. And then 150 minutes a week of exercise plus an hour a day of walking. And then three, three cycles of fasting, five day fasting making diet per year. Yeah, so those are the the major uh, recommendations. Awesome. Well, Dr. Longo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. It's I'm I've just been forever grateful for so long and I've been such a follower of your work and like I said I I was overwhelmed looking at your list of studies and I'm really excited to see everything that comes in the future. So, um just thank you. I will continue to follow your work. Hopefully we can bring you back on in the future. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman, editing by Podcast Doctors, show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner, and original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.